Uh, others, if you're in the Fellowship of Isis, as I am, uh, you might have known her as the Right Reverend Lorian Vignet uh, from Isis Oasis uh, Sanctuary in Geyserville, California. That's uh, north of San Francisco. Uh, let me read you a bit uh, from the Isis Oasis website, uh, because this is a woman who uh, has uh, dedicated her entire life uh, to Isis, to rebirthing the divine feminine, and she has left quite a legacy. It is with sorrow that we must announce that our foundress, artist, priestess, and visionary, Lorian Vignet, has left this earthly plane for new adventures in the cosmos. She passed away peacefully on Tuesday, July 15th, on the birthday of Horus, son of Isis, after a brief period of illness. In recent weeks, she had grown increasingly impatient with recent new physical limitations, and while all hoped for her complete recovery, it unfortunately was not to be. Earlier in the evening, she had enjoyed dining on the patio and talking with friends and staff at Isis Oasis and announced that she believed she had turned a corner in her recovery. Shortly after going to bed, a friend stopped by to give her a foot massage and discovered she wasn't breathing, and despite the valiant efforts of staff, friends, and paramedics, she did not revive on this side of the veil. Like the goddess Isis herself and the ancient queens of Egypt, Lorian succeeded in creating a world of beauty, richness, and delight, honoring Mother Nature in the form of Isis, which has been shared and enjoyed with everyone who has visited Isis Oasis. Her charm, brilliance, and sense of fun has brightened the lives of thousands. We're only just realizing the magnitude of her loss, which is affecting so many in so many ways. The Isis Oasis Sanctuary and Temple of Isis are continuing along the lines that Lorian established. Her family and the Temple of Isis are working together to ensure her legacy will go on to inspire and enlighten all those drawn to Isis Oasis and the Goddess. Um, you can actually uh, find in the archives here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine um, two previous shows that I did with Lorian uh, over the past few years. Uh, her voice lives on here. Uh, I consider myself very fortunate to um, have her in my spiritual history. And uh, I would encourage anyone who uh, maybe don't know who she is uh, to maybe listen to her voice, uh, hear her words of wisdom. Um, she was an incredible woman, and she will be missed. Well, last week uh, I announced a new segment I'm doing, and I want to be sure you heard. Uh, for my What's the Buzz segment, when I talk about the bees in my bonnet, um, I want to invite you to participate. I'd love to hear from you. Email a short paragraph. Let me know how decisions being made or, uh, or not being made uh, by uh, our government or politicians or the Supreme Court. Uh, how is that affecting your life? You know, these are not abstract ideas. Uh, have you experienced a state-mandated vaginal probe? Have you been denied the right to vote or contraception? Have, uh, how would you have been affected if the bill Elizabeth Warren wanted to get passed for student loans um, and wasn't rejected by Republicans? How would that have helped you? I think you get the idea. Let's take this to the personal level and show how policies that are anti-woman, anti-worker, anti-gay, anti-science, anti-immigrant, etc., etc., how do they affect you, your family, your life? If you're a Hobby Lobby employee, let me hear from you. 
You can rena- uh, remain anonymous on the air if you like, uh, or if you just have to vent and have a comment about any recent headlines, you have a voice here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And we want to hear good things too, okay? Uh, so send me those stories as well. Send me your comments and thoughts. Uh, maybe we'll start opening the chat room if there's interest. Uh, send me inspirational things as well. Let me know what you're doing out there to help us all have a better quality of life. How are you finding your own sacred roar? And those are the little bees buzzing around in my bonnet tonight. Too crazy. <laughs> Um, Today, uh, I want to share a quote from an email that came out from Trista Hendren, author of The Girl God and Mother Earth, who was recently on the show uh, with her beautiful uh, children's books. And uh, the quote was uh, from Audre Lorde. And the quote is short, short and sweet. goes like this. Without community, there is no liberation. Think about that a minute. Without community, there is no liberation. Well, what does that mean to you? Well, to me, I interpret it to mean without solidarity, without common ground, without plurality, without partnership, there's no coming together. Um, There's no allies to fight oppression, domination, exploitation. We are powerful because of our numbers. We are powerful because of our togetherness. We are powerful because of our partnership. Remember when all our calls shut down the switchboard in Washington? Let's not let the wedge issues divide us. Let us stand together in solidarity and partnership and together dissolve the patriarchy so that we all have a better quality of life. Okay, those are the bees buzzing around in my bonnet tonight. And uh, we're going to get to Angie um, up next here. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about her before we start our chat. Uh, Angie Buchanan is a family tradition pagan who refers to herself as an animist and an awe junkie. She's a founder and uh, the director of Gaia's Womb, now in its 16th year. She's a sought-after workshop presenter and speaker. Uh, nationally and internationally at pagan and interfaith events, including the 2004 and 2009 Parliament of the World's Religions in Spain and Australia, respectively, Uh, the Buddhist Council of the Midwest Women's Conference, uh, CPWR Women's Task Force, uh, Covenant of the Goddess National Merry Meet Gathering, Pantheacon, and a variety of schools, universities, churches, synagogues, and gurdwaras. Not sure what that is. She'll have to tell us. Uh, Angie is an ordained minister currently with Earth Traditions, a pagan church. She's a transformative ritualist, a celebrant, and a certified death midwife under Nora Cedarwind Young. And you know what? I have to agree with all of those wonderful things about Angie. I uh, attended a Gaia's Womb conference one weekend, and she is an awesome ritualist and facilitator, and I just had a wonderful time. I thought I was going there to teach, and of course I did, but uh, she taught me a thing or two as well, and I had a wonderful time. Angie, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, Karen. It's a pleasure to be here. So tonight, um, our topic is death, midwifery, midwifery, uh, taking back our most important rite of passage. Um, what, um, what made you feel that was something you wanted to talk about tonight, Angie? Well, I, 
I think that it is often an overlooked aspect of our lives, especially those of us who celebrate um, as people of the earth. We, we tend to pay a lot of attention to rites of passage, to, um, to the, the birthing process and to the coming of age, uh, the first blood for our, our young women, marriage, uh, but we we kind of skate around death and, and pretend it doesn't exist or we don't talk about it a lot or when we talk about it, it's about other people. It doesn't happen to us. And, uh, and I think that, that that's a problem, and I think it's a problem not only in our community but also in our culture in general. And so um, the, the uh, act of being a death midwife is to sort of bring attention back to what I believe is one of our most important rites of passage and uh, to, to illuminate it and to reveal uh, some of the mystery and to prepare for it just as gracefully and carefully as we would for any other rite of passage. Um, Angie, just uh, uh, tweak the phone up just a teensy bit more, if you would. Oops, I'm sorry. Um, is that better? Yes, yes, please keep it right there if you don't mind. Um, you know why do you I, I guess you I mean as um as experienced a priestess as you are, I'm sure you've given a lot of thought to all of this. Um beyond the obvious, uh I mean, do you have theories about why we deny this? I mean, we know the mother uh is from womb to tomb. We sing about uh, you know, we return to her in the end. and But but do you think it's all really abstract for us? I don't know that it's all abstract, but I do, I do think that uh, because it is a mystery, we tend to approach it with fear. And the fear that is experienced is, is mostly because we feel so unprepared. And there are emotional and spiritual and practical things that we can do uh, to, to help us be better prepared um, and to, to make it easier on our families and those that we leave behind. Okay. Um, I, I recall, um, oh, it's kind of foggy in my mind now, but I was talking to um, uh, scholar Christina Biaggi once. Uh, she, I think, uh, edited the anthology Rule of Mars, and uh, it was about uh, how patriarchy came into being. And I think, you know, all of the different essayists contributed, you know, a chapter. And one of them I, I has stuck in my mind, and it's kind of relevant, I think, to what we're talking about. Uh, she said she she uh, recalled that one of the people had written in, in uh, an essay about how one of the reasons goddess was rejected was because it was she was recognized so much for that circle of life, you know, that death and you know birth, death, rebirth, and you know, and, and really humanity um, wanted to sort of cheat death, so it was almost as if. You know, we if if we can get away from that circle of life that's right there in front of our eyes, and we create something different, and uh, and I don't know, maybe we talk about you know this life is not really 
um, you know what we're you know what we're supposed to enjoy. It's the life afterwards that's really where we get all the rewards. Um, you know, because nature is too chaotic, nature is too unpredictable. You know, with nature, you know, it's inevitable. You have to return to the soil. Um, you know, has, you know. Do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, do you think, uh, you know, about that in itself um, could in fact be a reason for goddesses undoing and, you know, uh, these patriarchal ideas taking taking her place. Well, I think that that indeed there was a, a point in time where men were um, threatened by the idea of a woman being the gateway to birth, and and you and I have have talked uh, before about you know there is no man, no no tycoon, no king, no politician has ever 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 come through this world, come to this world other than through the body of a woman, and and that can be threatening. Um, we all come in uh, through the birthing process, and we all leave through the dying process. Um, I, I'm not really sure uh, that perhaps death wasn't more um, rejected by men because it, it felt like such an end when women could apparently regenerate uh, through birthing the, the lineage. Um, being a death midwife, though, is something that is actually appealing and uh, can be done by either men or women. We have had several men who have gone through our training and who actually use the term death midwife because the death midwife is a, a position that stands in the threshold. So similarly to a birth midwife uh, who stands at the threshold and receives um, the new being into the world, the death midwife stands at the threshold and guides the departing being from the world. And uh, it, it's something that used to be done as a folkway uh, within our culture and within most cultures, but in our Western culture, um, it it was sort of thrown to the wayside as the funeral industry rose in power um, and it became a, a social uh, a status to have someone else uh, take care of your dead for you so that you didn't have to do it, you didn't have to see it. Um, and we lost so much with that. We lost so much of the, the caring and the ability to to say goodbye and to, to finish up um, unfinished business and to to touch our beloveds even after they were dead and to care for their bodies and um, you know to, to actually undergo this the active stage of dying uh, with our, our loved ones and uh, to, to you know I say we come into this world and we're taken care of and we're we're stroked and we're cuddled and we're spoken to very softly and you know, we're treated very kindly, and most of the time when we die, we die alone in a hospital hooked up to tubes and machines and surrounded by strangers. And so we want to reclaim the idea of, of this slow, gentle, unraveling process of dying that is so akin to birth and labor and, uh, and um, 
Well, not let's talk about that away. some. You know, for for people who maybe have just taken, uh, you know, the way people, you know, uh, when they when they pass and the whole funeral industry and you know wakes and funerals and all of that, you know, who just take that as the norm. Uh, who maybe don't know that there was ever another way. Um, can you speak a little bit about, you know, be- before that, uh, you know, be- before that was the norm? Um, how how did how were things different? Well, you know, the the last hundred years has been the the period of significant change, where the care of our dead has gradually been turned over. Um, embalming became popular during the Civil War when most American families still laid their dead ones out for visitation in their homes. Um, And I have an interesting little piece of information about that. You know, homes used to have a room called the parlor. And the parlor was the place that uh, had plastic on the slip covers and and, uh, it was all beautiful furniture. And no one ever went in there and sat down. And this was the room where you would lay out your dead. And uh, the family would come for visitation. They would have the wake and uh, the family dressed and bathed um, the beloved dead. And uh, this was uh, something where that was the culture. And the funeral homes were mostly used by the more wealthy, and they were a status symbol until um, after World War II when more middle-class people could afford those services. So embalming became popular because families wanted the bodies of their dead soldiers returned to them for burial here in the States. Uh, A lot of people don't realize that there is not a single state in the United States of America that has a law that says you must embalm your dead. So that is uh, essentially a a marketing technique. And um, uh, we just simply aren't – now instead of the parlor – and the, the family gathering around, we have the living room, right? Which right. has completely taken death out of the home, right? Well, yeah, my so. grandmother had one of those parlors. I remember it quite well. <laughs> well, well, and I mean, I know in the Egyptian religion, um, you know, the ancient Egyptian religion. I'm thinking back to when Osiris dies, and you read that account. They actually had professional mourners who would cry, and um, you know, I, honestly, I don't know that much about it, but I wonder, um, have you done any research? Is that something that was pretty typical at, you know, did people really used to do funerals that way? Absolutely. Cross-culturally, in, in France, they were called Les Pleurants, and they were hired to come, and they were generally anonymous and robed, and they would weep and wail and, you know, tear their hair and start the sort of grieving process to bring closure for the family. And, you know, the family would rip their clothing and would cover themselves in ashes and would, you know, there are some of those um, traditions that are still in act today, the covering of the mirror with black fabric or the wearing of a black uh, garment or a black armband, but um, essentially, you know, we are relegated to a couple of hours at a funeral home. And so the the actual deep, heart-wrenching, grieving, sobbing that should be surrounded by family and friends and soothing words and comfort has been taken from us because it's not considered socially acceptable to break down in public at a funeral home. 
And and well, what is the point of having strangers cry and wail? Uh, is it uh, I, that that I don't really understand too well? I mean, it's, I think it's, it's mostly a leadership position to to sort of set the the energy of what's happening, um, and to to make it all right for the others to join in. It's it's I um, see. It's something that we actually do at our Samhain ritual is we will start people uh, chanting and, and just sort of moving into a free-form uh, sound that ends up uh, comforting the ones who then feel free to weep through the noise. So, Angie, are you saying that if you're – well, I would imagine part of where you're going with this, and, you know, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm making assumptions here, that uh, assuming, you know, your loved one doesn't want to die in a hospital and they would prefer to die at home, that's sort of step number one. You have the right to, I would assume, do that. But from that point, as they pass, do you have a right to keep the body in the house and not embalm it? And if so, how long does the body last that way? And, um, you know, I mean, I know this isn't probably the most uplifting subject, but, you know, it's something that needs to be talked about, especially if there are options beyond the sterile funeral homes that gouge you. And you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just really unnatural and it feels like it's really just sort of takes advantage of grieving families. Well, I think that the funeral industry has its place, but, but as a death midwife, I like to uh, work with my clients to let them know that there are choices. And um, we don't duplicate the work of professionals, such as funeral directors or even such as nurses, but we work alongside them um, to provide some information so that the family can make a, a family-centered act of choosing the most graceful way um, they want to go about this, and yes, absolutely, a person can die at home, and they can be bathed and taken care of. Death is not an emergency. Um, you don't have to immediately call 911 when someone has died um, uh, if it's a, a lingering illness and they're under medical care or something like that. Uh, you certainly can care for the body at home. Generally. Um, with the use of some dry ice and some other techniques, you can keep a body that is not embalmed uh, in perfectly good condition for four days, three or four days. And, wow. uh, and then you work alongside of the other industries for transporting and to, um, to uh, make sure that the final wishes for the disposition of the body are honored. And there are many, many different ways that people will choose to have their remains uh, disposed of, from traditional burial to green burial and uh, cremation and sea burials, and there are some some really innovative new ways that uh, we're using to, for the disposition, final disposition of body too. Um, well, now the green burials I knew about, um, and I, I don't I don't know if they've become easier to do but, uh, because you have to find a place. Well, well. First of all, why don't you say what a green burial is, and and then I want to hear about the sea burials. I didn't, I you know, I thought that was maybe reserved for, you know, people on a ship or something when there wasn't anything else to do with the body. But speak about some of those, if you would. 
Sure, I'd love to. A green burial is, is an um, eco-friendly burial. Uh, generally, it's, um, there are cemeteries that it's an up-and-coming thing. There are more and more cemeteries that are coming up that are uh, specifically for green burial, and then there are many areas in existing cemeteries that can accommodate a green burial. Generally, a green burial consists of a biodegradable uh, container like a willow basket or um, even just a shroud, and uh, the body is put into the ground. It is not embalmed. All of the um, uh, non-biodegradable materials must be removed from it, all of the metal fillings, no jewelry, uh, pacemakers or, or um, pins and um, uh, mesh and, and things that would be used for hip replacement, artificial joints, those have to be removed. But um, it allows the body to decompose and be taken back into uh, the earth and without being toxic. Um, a lot of people don't understand that the concrete vault that a body is put into or that the, the casket that the body is in is then put into and put into the ground. None of those things are actually protecting anything because the embalming fluid will still leak out through those things and to be absorbed into the ground. Uh, a lot of times the concrete vault doesn't even have a bottom on it. The, the main purpose for a concrete vault is to keep the landscape level so that the cemetery can mow on it. And people don't, don't know that. So uh, the traditional burials, you know, are, are very toxic. The, the uh, embalming material will, will go straight into the ground and it can impact groundwater and, and uh, soil. Uh, a traditional or a green burial uh, avoids that. Um, no, we all I'm, know curious, about cream. I'm, I'm curious about, we, I didn't realize that if you had like a knee replacement or fillings that all of that has to be removed. Who does that? It depends. Um, mostly it would be the a funeral home, whoever is, is dealing with the body. Um, you can ask the doctor. Uh, if you have a family doctor, you can ask them to do it. Okay. So now you wouldn't do that, though, in just the the, the more traditional-type uh, burial. That's just a requirement for the green burial. That's right. Okay. And so the burial at sea, that's the, is that something new, or it's always been around? Or? Well, the sea burial that's happening these days is a, a really fascinating idea. It is, um, it's actually... Uh, the fabrication of coral reefs um, and and using ash, so it would be a cremation, and then the ash is taken uh, and mixed into a concrete mixture, and these uh, reefs are being built that are then submerged uh, into the ocean floor, and uh, they start a whole new ecosystem down there with fish and algae and flora and um, uh, the divers can visit them, but it is helping to uh, preserve some of our damaged coral reefs. Okay, so it's not this vision I have of a, ba a body wrapped in a shroud that sort of slid off the back of a boat then. <laughs> it, it's, it's actually right. cremated ashes. Yeah. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. And then there are... Um, 
there are processes out uh, available now where you can have uh, your ashes turned into a gemstone or a vase through a high-pressure system. Um, there's a, a procedure called promeshin, which is where the body is actually freeze-dried in uh, uh, nitro and then shattered and can be scattered from there. And, and actually, interestingly enough, some of these uh, techniques are, um, are more green than cremation. Cremation is not actually that green with the emissions. Right. Yeah, I would. I would think. Um, well, this is this is really interesting. Um, but but let's back up a little bit. I would imagine. Let's let's go back to your you know laying out your loved one in the parlor, and but before you even get there, I would imagine for insurance purposes and all of that, once somebody dies, you probably have to call some authority so that you get a death certificate and it's legally and properly recorded, right? Yes, absolutely. A doctor can provide the um, the pronouncement of death. A coroner can do it. Um, it. The laws vary from state to state, and so it's important to understand what they are in your state and uh, uh, to know what the procedure is. But uh, certainly if, if an individual is elderly and has been unwell for a while or anyone who has been unwell for a while and is maybe under hospice care at home um, or has just decided that they wanted to come home to die, uh, I, I think it's fairly um, easy to get the death certificate. Right. And, um, and I mean, I know this might sound crazy and everybody probably knows better, but, you know, we're talking about this idea of green burials returning the body to the earth. It's against the law to bury a body like in your backyard. I mean, you can't do stuff like that, even if you have acres of land, I, I wouldn't imagine. Again, it, there, the, the uh, laws vary from state to state. There are places oh. where you certainly can have a family cemetery or, you know, you certainly can can bury remains on your own property. I didn't, I didn't realize that. So where does somebody go to get that kind of information in their particular state? What, what department handles stuff like that? Um, well, it, again, just Google uh, what the, the uh, funeral and burial um, laws and regulations are in your state. And um, uh, there are forms that can be uh, downloaded from uh, um, uh, online. And uh, there are many, there are six, essentially there are six documents that everybody really should have. Uh, in advance that um, that are things like your will and your living will and um, your uh, uh, power of attorney for um, uh, your financial business, your uh, power of attorney for for health um, and these are these are forms that differ from state to state some of them you you have to have and and some of them aren't required in other states, um, but uh, uh, you can get them, most of them online in any state. Okay. Well, and, and I'm, um, uh, you know, and, and I guess I, I'm really interested in the aspect of the, the death midwife. Um, how, how can she aid 
the passing over? You know, what, what does that look like? And I mean, I would imagine it's different from person to person, but I guess in general. Well, I think it's a matter of, of having a relationship with that person if you are actually dealing with the person who is dying and not not the family. But um, it's it's being able to recognize and support the individual needs of the dying person to uh, enable a tranquil death. And the serenity of death um, is something that's, that, that is to be desired. So um, we help them with their death planning and those documents that we just talked about and making sure that they um, are able to have the conversations that they want to have with their loved ones. Um, we give healing using sound or touch or color or scent. Um, we help keep a loving vigil. Uh, we create and hold a sacred and healing space um, for the dying person, whether they're in a hospital or in hospice or at home. Um, as a pagan, I tend to work with the spirit and the soul of the patient at all levels during the stages of transition, ensuring that they feel loved and supported right up to the last breath. And then I, I will visit with the family after the death to share the experiences and to, to talk and, and reflect. So it's a, it, it, again, it's emotional, spiritual, and practical support. Um, I, I'm able to work with people from any belief or no belief because compassion is not a religion. Right. So right. Um, I guess, you know, the motivated family can independently acquire the, the legal knowledge and practical skills to, to handle this, but it's, uh, it's eased, the process is eased when there's someone there to, to just sort of be an anchor. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I'm sure if the family has never gone through this before, they, they're pretty lost you know, and, and they're emotionally distraught, so they need someone who can kind of uh, orchestrate the whole thing, um, you know, facilitate Right. The when, a, when a loved one's death is dignified and peaceful and meaningful, it can be a sacred, sacred experience for the ones that are left behind. And often an event like this can heal family rifts and can, you know, be, it, it enables people to reconnect with each other in ways that are, life-changing for everyone involved. So right. when families are able to participate in the ending of a loved one's life, it can be a very, very empowering thing. Yeah, because, you know, I've always, uh, you know, honestly, I really avoid funerals and wakes and because I kind of feel like they're really for the living uh, rather than the person who's passed on. Um, and, I mean, and, and you may feel differently. Uh, I just haven't had a positive experience at a you know, at at a funeral or 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 wake, you know, it it just felt like it's more about the people there than uh, easing the easing the passing of the the person who uh, who has died. And because, like you said, so often they maybe even died alone, you know, in in a hospital. Um, it, uh, well, let's go back a minute to the different methods of death. Um, I know some religions have, um, you know, taboos about how the body is handled and things like that. And I know pagans, Wiccans, goddess people, you know, they're much more eclectic bunch. Um, But do you find that there's anything that uh, is sort of, uh, you know, taboo or uh, not done in, let's call it the, the pagan community? 
No. <laughs> no, I think that it's, um, it is completely up to what the person wants, if, if they've been consulted about it, and, or what the family wants. I, I mean, I've seen everything from uh, karaoke to uh, um, drawing on a, a cremation box and, and painting and putting handprints you know, on the box that their loved one is in. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's just very, uh, you can get very creative. Right, with right. And, and no real so. religious taboos. Um, no. Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, I think if you're Jewish, you know, the body's got to be handled a particular, a particular way and, you know, buried within a certain oh, yeah. amount of time and... For other Definitely. religions, absolutely, yeah. The, uh, the Jewish tradition and the the Baha'is, and um, there are, I, I believe, the Sikh tradition does not embalm. They they simply it is taboo to embalm, and so the body has to be buried within a short amount of time of death. And uh, uh, so there are certainly some restrictions in in other religions, but as far as um, uh, my response to your last question was with regard to pagans. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Most. Most definitely. Um, so, what else should we know? I mean, we know there needs to be the will, the living will, the power of attorneys. Um, you know, you. You know, I, I guess the person who is passing should give some direction about you know, what sort of funeral uh, they'd like to have or the disposition of, of their body. Uh, but is there are any other things that um, we need to know that kind of falls under this, you know, this umbrella of uh, death midwife? Well, I, I think that we all need to, to be a little bit um, easier on ourselves with regard to the whole grief process. Um, I think that that more and more, especially as, as uh, we age, uh, we come into contact with people who are dying. And uh, there's the anticipatory grief, which is where we try to grieve in advance and get it over with. Um, and it's also something that's experienced by the caregivers. Um, and then there's grief itself, uh, both on the part of the individual who is dying, who is going to be losing their sense of self, who is going to be um, uh, changing in, in ways that they feel helpless about. And so there's the, the, um, the idea that sometimes with grief we just have to hurry up and get it over with and uh, that um, I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've actually heard someone say about someone else, well, you'd think they'd be over that by now. And I think we need to let go of that. Right, right. Well, you know, I think it's probably a lot like forgiveness or anger and, and pain. You know, we we get over it when we get over it. And I think sometimes we even think we're over it, and then we find that there's another layer hiding there that we didn't even know was there. Right. I call it a tide. It's, grief is not an on and off switch. It's like a tide. The wave goes out, and then just when you think you're you're doing great, and you turn around to walk up on the beach, it'll come smack you in the back of the knees, and down you go again. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a process, and uh, uh, we need to be given our process. We can't do it uh, in in four hours. Right. 
Right. Yeah. That. Yeah. That's that's kind of crazy. And you know, it, unless we really weren't that connected, you know what I mean. Um, so, Angie, um, what do you you know? What does the midwife do? Uh, for someone who's afraid, you know, who's afraid to pass over. You know, they don't have any concrete beliefs about, you know, what's going to happen when their eyes close. I think the most that we can do for that person is to comfort them while they're here. And there are lots of ways to do that with touch and sound and to just sort of make the space as serene as possible um, to allow this person to... Um, to move into the space uh, where they can face what's ahead. A lot of the fear um, is based on um, their indoctrinations. And, you know, sometimes just a gentle word and a soft touch can, can soothe uh, that um, because they are transitioning into a sacred space. And uh, it's it's something that we all have to do. Right. Well, you know, I, for one, I mean, I'll admit, you know, I have never sat with someone as they passed. Um, I don't know what that's like. Uh, a friend of mine uh, was with his uncle when he passed in the hospital, and he literally, and I mean, he, he wasn't a person prone to these sorts of things, but he feels like he literally saw um I don't know, almost a a subtle, subtle mist almost, you know, leave the body and float up. And, you know, we always hear these stories of, you know, toward the end, or, you know, or maybe it's just the drama of television, but, you know, we see these, uh, we see the dying person, you know, maybe sees their loved ones, you know, when they're sort of half conscious or half not. I mean, are, are those sorts of things real? Uh, I mean, do those really happen, or is that just, um, I don't know, I guess I'm just asking what your experience has been sitting at the bedside of of someone who's, as they, as they that, that moment of transition. My experience has been that, yes, those things do happen. And, you know, uh, Karen, when in, early in my career, I worked for the Federal Bureau of Prisons, and I worked in a co-ed medical facility. And the reason uh, that most of the people were in that facility uh, that were on my ward uh, is because they were pregnant. And so during my tenure there, I attended 173 births. Um, During that time of standing in that threshold, I I sort of learned to um, feel the impact of a new being coming into the room, and it is a miraculous experience. There is all this busyness going on with doctors and nurses, and the mother is working very, very hard, and then suddenly there's another person in the room. And for me, there was a very physical sensation that accompanied that entrance into the room, and I have had a similar experience um, as the spirit exits the room that there is a very tangible difference. Um, Several of my clients have seen things as they've left, either people that they've known or they've reached out to um, someone that I couldn't see. Uh, But it's, um, you know, it it is a birthright and a death right 
to be loved and supported, you know, up to that last breath. And, and um, you know, I believe that there is certainly something on the other side. And having had a, a near-death experience myself, um, I'm even more convinced. Right, right, right. Um, well, well, this this has all been, <clears throat> you know, very informative. I, I, I think, you know, all of it, but I think especially... Uh, to get people thinking that you know the you know the the funeral system that's out there that industry is not the is not really the only way to go. I mean, what what do you? Uh, granted, you know, and it may be different from state to state, but where does one find the most resistance usually f- for these other alternative ways of dealing with your loved one's passing? I think that a lot of times any resistance that I've run into has just been sort of a matter of ignorance on the part of um, some hospitals and medical personnel and and how they are interpreting their policies. And, you know, a policy is much different than a law. And so when when you um, introduce someone to something that they have perhaps not entertained before, uh, oftentimes there's an immediate reaction of negativity and no, you can't do that. that that's not allowed or it can't be allowed. Or, um, But to be able to just talk with these people and um, to gently uh, suggest that there is another way um, has been very helpful. Um, and, you know, there's a book out by the... The title of the book is called Final Rights. And it's... Uh, R-I-G-H-T-S, Final Rights. And it is a, a wonderful resource to have. Um, when I do the death midwife certification class, it's, it's one of the uh, main um, resources that I encourage students to, to purchase. And it tells you what all of the laws are in all of the different states and uh, how you have to um, uh, conduct the chronology of of things that have to happen um, as you're going through this. And then there's also an online resource that's connected to it that will give you all of the updates if if laws have changed in particular states. So, you know, that's one of the first places that I would send someone uh, who was thinking about um, uh, helping to, to guide a home death and or funeral. Well, and maybe this is the the job of the death midwife, but it it you know I, as I'm hearing you uh, being the organizer that I am, I, it almost feels like the person um, you know who's putting their plan in place might ought to assign somebody to sort of navigate all of that, you know, so that there you know someone who of course is in the picture but maybe won't be as directly affected by the most immediate family you know, um, just to sort of make sure everything happens in the proper procedure. Um, right. Or, or is that what the, the death midwife does? Well, your power of attorney for health and finance are, are two documents that are going to help um, express how it is that you want things to happen um, as you decline and, and pass on. Um, it's good if you're working with a death midwife to, to let them know that these uh, wishes exist or sometimes a death midwife can help you put those documents together. 
and uh, it's important for several people in your family to know where they are. You know, you, you don't want to put them in the, the safety deposit box um, because nobody's going to be able to get in there if you're passed. And, um, you know, we, we tell people that one of the best places to put those kinds of documents is in a Ziploc bag in your freezer. Hmm. And uh, that way if the house burns down, the documents are still there. There you go. That's a good idea. Um, you know, you brought this up, and I don't want to tread where you're uncomfortable going, uh, but you mentioned your own um, experience. I, I wonder if you wanted to share that, because um, I think it might be comforting for, you know, maybe people who don't know what uh, is on the other side, you know, to to hear your experience, if, if you're willing. Well, uh, it's kind of a long and involved story, so I'm not going to be able to share a whole lot about it. But what I can say is that my experience um, was certainly of, of being released from my body and plugged into everything and um, being able to relate stories when I came back of what particular individuals were doing um, and, and writing in books and saying and conversations that they were having um, who were miles and miles away from where I was. And, um, and what was really interesting to me about it is that one of the people that it happened with was one of the nurses that was dealing with me. And I um, described her living room to her, and she seemed completely unfazed when it happened and said, yes, that's my living room. And the next time you're there, say hello. So, um, <laughs> um, the so she's heard it before? Was, is, yes, is that sort of the it point? It was not new. All right. It was not new, a new experience for her to, to have this um, happen with people that she was dealing with who had been very, very sick. So hmm. um, I think that I know many others who have had similar experiences and their experiences have been different than mine. So I think that kind of like the birth experience, there's a, a parameter, but then, you know, everyone has a, has a different experience. Right. So you, you, I mean, you had actually flatlined. Uh, you weren't just in a coma or... Right, yeah. I mean, so you were gone. That's what I'm told. <laughs> Interesting, interesting. Well, you know, it, I, I think when you, like you said, when you've had that kind of experience, I mean, you hear people say it over and over again, once you've had that sort of experience and come back, then, you know, you understand that there really isn't anything to be afraid of. You know, you're you're just sort of walking through a door into the next, um, uh, you know, the, the the next level or the next realm, so to speak. Um, you know, the right, I phase. call it taking one. Yeah, I, I call it taking one step sideways. It's just one taking step one sideways. Step. And I, I'm fairly, I'm probably one of the most pragmatic, grounded people <laughs> that that I know. And for me to actually have this kind of a story is um, a constant source of puzzlement. Uh, yeah. But it was my experience, and, you know, I have to accept that, and I have to integrate it into the way I, I walk my life now. Sure. Sure. Uh, no, I, I I know what you mean. I, I I consider myself the same, and whenever I have some sort of 
I'll just call it, you know, uh, one of those woo-woo experiences. <laughs> I think, you know what, if I had one of those, you know, because I'm not prone to hallucinations or, uh, or, or I, I, I'm really big on not deluding myself, then, you know, then I'm convinced that uh, something real, you know, something real actually happened. Um, well, um, Angie, uh, I, I think that just about wraps it up. Uh, unless there's uh, something you wanted to say that maybe I uh, have failed to ask you. Um, well, I, I do want to say that um, it is important for people to learn what uh, they they can do with regard to this topic and with regard to working with their loved ones. Um, friends and family, uh, we offer through Earth Traditions um, a certification course that is for uh, death midwifery, and it's a training course that happens over the period of a weekend. Um, if you go to www.earthtraditions.org, uh, you will see a, a tab on that website that will tell you a little bit about the program and it'll list the death midwives that we've trained um, over the past year or so. Uh, Nora Cedarwind Young is also offering um, these classes out on the West Coast, and she was the one that, that I'm going to blame for getting me involved in all of this. And Nora has her own story to tell. Um, she's at Thresholds of Life, and you can look that up on the web too. But... Uh, um, Nora is the one that encouraged me to, to take this on and to be involved in it. She was uh, my teacher, and um, she did this as she was facing her own passing back in March of uh, 2013. However, um, she is still very much with us, and uh, uh, delightfully so, but um, uh, we are, as a result of Nora's illness, also offering these, these classes, and in October, the 17th, 18th, and 19th of October, we'll be offering another one in Chicago. And then in January, the 16th, 17th, and 18th, we'll be offering a certification course in Florida. So if you're interested in learning more about how to um, be effective in that threshold of death or just learning how to navigate those waters, you know, for yourself and for your family, um, we'd love to have you join us. Okay, and where in California was she located? Is she located? Nora, yeah. Nora is in the in Bellingham, Washington. Ah, in Bellingham. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought uh, you must have said out west, and I automatically just thought you meant California, but no, you meant Washington. Okay, all right. Um, well, Angie, thank you so much. Um, you know, you you are doing incredible work in so many different areas. It's always a pleasure to. I uh, hear what you're up to and uh, have you on the show. Um, you know, please, uh, you know, keep me in the loop and never hesitate to knock on my door when you have something you think my listeners need to hear. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to to be with you and to talk about these things, and um, and uh, I appreciate the work that you're doing, getting getting words of wisdom out there and and uh, things that we may not ordinarily just be able to talk about. So. Thank you for having me, Karen, and until the next time. Okay. All right, then. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful summer, and best of luck with all your projects. You too. Good night.
Well, um, lots of lots of important information there. Lots of important information. I thank Angie uh, for her work in the world. Uh, well, we are uh, crossing over the threshold into the next part of the show. And um, I see that uh, Paula is on the line, and I will be getting to her in uh, two shakes here. <clears throat> but first, a couple housekeeping tidbits before we move on uh, into the second half of the show. I owe Joe Carson of Dancing with Gaia. I owe her a commercial. And here we go. The psychic state is the collective unconscious, which is that consciousness of the planet. It's called the chthonic mind, the mind of the earth. Our ancestors understood that the animal and divine were all connected, they were together, that there wasn't a separation. That's what we are trying to return to, is that sense that our animal nature is divine. It doesn't get in the way of the divine. It gets us closer to it. What's your idea of being fully alive as a human being? Because that's what's really spiritual. Write it down. Start writing your own Bible if you want. That's the sacred. And by that, I just mean sweaty, fun, happy sex. Well, that voice you heard there, uh, that was Serena Roney-Dougal, Ph.D., uh, speaking in Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia. Dancing with Gaia explores the connection between Earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the goddesses Gaia. Uh, It features 15 visionaries who give us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves. The DVD comes with a 45-page mini-book and costs just $20, and you can get your own copy at DancingWithGaia.com, DancingWithGaia.com. Well, you know, sometimes I feel like those poor people that stand, uh, you know, stand in front of you on your TV screen uh, on PBS. But here goes. Um, let me uh, know that I am not all alone out here. <laughs> I know I'm not, but you know what I mean. Um, let me know you're enjoying the show, that you don't want it to go away. You know, it's a lot of work to do the show every week, year in and year out. Uh, you can actually show your appreciation and support by either sending a donation to help keep Voices of the Sacred Feminine on the air, or, you know, um, you can help me by buying one of my books, uh, either from me or wherever you can get it new. Buying used books doesn't help at all, but by all means, if that's all you can afford, I certainly understand. Uh, I'd rather you get the message than not. So I hope uh, you will consider uh, going to my website, karentate.com, and order a book um, or uh, from your local bookseller. Uh, that would be another good option. You know, Amazon is putting uh, most booksellers out of business. Uh, we have I can't even tell you where we have an independent bookseller uh, here in Los Angeles anymore. Um, and we have to be aware of that. Uh, buying at Amazon, uh, you know, buy there if that's your only option. Um, you know, I was reading an article just this week that said Amazon might start offering a deal where readers can have access to 500,000 titles on their Kindle for $10 a month. That will just totally put the nails in the coffin, so to speak. That will totally destroy an already dying book publishing industry. 
So um, my newest book, God is Calling, uh, that's the one I'm talking about here, um, but I have two others. I have uh, Walking in Ancient Path and Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations. Uh, but God is Calling, the newest, uh, it's for individual uh, or group inspiration. It helps connect the dots between the importance of goddess spirituality, politics, and social issues of the day. Uh, there are meditations there for um, personal empowerment and healing. Um, I actually get emails, this is true, uh, saying, Karen, I can't put the book down and it makes me feel good. And, you know, that means so much. So, my dear listeners, I hope you'll help support me and the show by picking up a copy of one of my books. Um, the last one, as I said, is Goddess Calling, Inspirational Messages and Meditations of Sacred Feminine Liberation Theology. Now, uh, our, next, uh, our next guest is uh, Dr. Paula uh, Trimble Famoletti. Uh, she uh, is a passionate advocate for women's rights, uh, inclusive language, and biblical literacy. She holds a BA in religion from Chapman University, an MA in religion from Liberty University, and a Doctor of Ministry in International Feminist Theology from San from the San Francisco Theological Seminary. She's taught women and religion and women's history for Chapman U, and as a past co-convener of the Women's Caucus of the American Academy of Religion. She's a regular contributor to the Words of Faith column in the Desert Sun News and author of Prostitutes, Virgins, and Mothers, Questioning Teachings About Biblical Women. So, uh, Paula, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm so glad to uh, have you with me. I was really intrigued uh, by uh, your book that's out, uh, Prostitutes, Virgins, and Mothers, um, you know, the teachings of biblical women. And um, I'm really glad to have you on the show, uh, you know, to talk about the women that uh, maybe are overlooked in the Bible. And But I think most of the women that are in your book, are are, are they all connected to Jesus in some way? Yes, they are. They're either in his genealogy, in his family, uh, part of the circle of friends during his life, or in the creation of the early church. Okay, okay. And, um, you know, I, I know you know more than me about this, but one thing that's always intrigued me, intrigued me about his mother, um, and I think it comes from the maybe, oh, I, I want to say the infancy gospels, and I might have that wrong, um, but talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, they it, it, they seem to have implied that uh, the family turned her over to the temple early, and I know some feminist scholars point to that as maybe some evidence that, um, I don't know, that there was some you know pagan influence there, that she was you know, being taught to be a priestess or something like that. I mean, do you think that's wishful thinking, or do you think there could be some real clues there? I think that what the Catholic Church has said about the early life of Mary um, sounds a lot like women who became vestal virgins. But the patriarchy did not want her to be a sexual being, so they had her raised in, in the temple. And I wish I knew the date of when that doctrine was developed um, because it's, it's relatively recent. It's not, 2000, it's not a 2,000-year-old doctrine. Um, but we, really, all we know about the mother of Jesus is a few snippets in the Gospels. 
And if we read the, if, if John was the only gospel we had, we wouldn't even know her name. Right, right. But we do um, find out in John that she has a sister. So that she has a sister. Oh mm-hmm. well, yeah. The, her, uh, yeah. Her. Uh, oh, her. Her sister is is Anne, isn't it? I, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I haven't thought about this sort of stuff for such a long time. Forgive me. Anne's the name that was given to her mother. We don't actually know what her mother's name was. We don't know her sister's name either. All we know is that John says, standing at the foot of his cross, were his mother and his mother's sister. Okay. Okay, um, and it, but this idea in the infancy gospels, um, you think that's more about uh, trying to suggest that she was sequestered from the the everyday world. Yes. Okay. Trying to keep her a virgin. Okay. Okay. I see, I see what you're saying. Um, and and I think it was Marguerite Rigoliozzo who. Uh, you know, who maybe chatted with us about this. I, I know the direction she sort of went was, um, you know, well, how do we know, you know, it wasn't a pagan temple, you know, and, you know, it, and it wasn't really about the idea of, um, you know, the, that the church's ideas, but, but really more, you know, more of a priestess training kind of a thing. But, I, I guess you maybe think that's a little bit too far-fetched, or we just really don't have a clue. One, you know, one well, idea I don't think it's, the next. I don't think it's far-fetched. I think it's intriguing. I had never heard that before, but I think it's an intriguing idea. Okay. Um, well, you know, I'm going to uh, maybe uh, in the next few days I will email you uh, a couple of the titles of her books. Uh, she's been on the show, and, uh, yeah, we, we had a, a lot of fun talking about Parthenogenesis and, uh, you know, what the powers of ancient priestesses might have been and how that became diluted uh, over time and that, you know, maybe Mary was actually in that lineage of, uh, of priestesses who could actually um, become impregnated through the process of parthenogenesis. Now that, of course, takes that pagan priestess thing in another whole new direction. But um, you know, I'm a firm believer we just don't have a clue about you know everything that happened in the past, and uh, I'm open to exploring new ideas. I'd be interested to get that email and look into that. That sounds very interesting. Okay. Yeah. Happy. Happy to refer you. Um, so, um, what what inspired this, Paula? Um, you know, uh, you know, was it you just felt, um, you know, in our patriarchal culture, you know, the women have been overlooked, or was it much more than that? Well, it's definitely that, um, but it started when I was really young in Sunday school, because that was something that we did every Sunday, was go to Sunday school and church. And I would wonder, where are the women? Why am I only learning about men? And why are the only women I'm learning about sinners or prostitutes or mothers or virgins? And I didn't even really know what a virgin was. And my Sunday school teachers used to tell my mother she always asks the hard questions. And that was some of some of my questions. Where are the women? Mm-hmm. And I've, I've always been drawn to studying religion, which is why I have the degrees that I do. And 
somewhere in my process, I started realizing that all of these stories I was hearing, I was hearing either a man tell me the story and interpret it to me or a woman who took a man's interpretation and gave it to me. And Bathsheba was the big aha moment for me when I read her story. And I was being told that she was this horrible temptress and made the king sin. And I read the story and went, "Uh uh-uh, she was raped. And so then I started reading the women's stories with a more critical eye and listening to what the story said to me as opposed to what somebody had taught me they were supposed to say to me, what the lesson was I was supposed to learn from the stories. And I, I wanted justice for biblical women. And I didn't know how I was going to do about that until I just thought, I've got to let them tell their own stories. And so why don't you give us an example or two? Um, you know, take Bathsheba or one of the other women and tell us the, the patriarchal version versus what you think was maybe the more authentic story. Um, I'm going to go with Leah, who was the wife of Jacob, and Rachel was also his wife. And the patriarchal version of the story in the Bible and in interpretations is that, um, well, a little background, uh, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. On their wedding night, the father tricked Jacob and substituted Leah. So the Bible is always saying, oh, Leah was unloved and and um, Leah wasn't beautiful, but Rachel was. Well, I started reading this story, and not that I think I channeled anybody, but I woke up in the middle of the night, and it was like Leah's voice was in my head going, you know, they say my husband didn't love me, but I know what was going on in my tent at night, and I have all of the children to prove. <laughs> so the, the patriarchal version is that she was unloved, Rachel was, but when I listened to Leah's story, that's not what I heard at all. Well, and for someone like me who uh, doesn't really remember the story of Rachel and Leah, um, you know, how how does the patriarchal, I, I mean, what's, you know, he, he was supposed to marry, he was supposed to marry Rachel, but he ends up with Leah. So where does Rachel fit into the story? So then Jacob has to work seven more years to marry Rachel, which he eventually does. And he has them both uh, as a wife then? Plus they're two, they're two slaves. Okay. Eventually he gets both of their slaves. Women? Mm-hmm. Uh, so now he's got a harem. <laughs> because he's got four, four wives. Okay. okay. And that family ends up being the family... Those children are the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. So, 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 so that's one example, um, you know, you, that, that you're giving, that, uh, you know, that, that patriarchy decided, uh, you know, that this woman was, was not desirable and, and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, but what what would be you know maybe what would be a, a, another story? I mean, more. I guess what I'm saying is you know stories that that really sort of um, you know take the power or the influence of women away. 
Um, that's you know, or or those the kinds of stories you also found that um, you know women were diminished, uh, you know, where they really might have you know been influential or or you know we you know were actually leaders in the community. Well, there's uh, one woman who's called either Dorcas or Tabitha in the Book of Acts, and she is um, said to be a disciple. But when she is interpreted, the interpretation is that, well, she wasn't really a disciple like men are disciples. She just was serving the, the women and the children. <laughs> or the way, the way that, um, um, oh gosh, the Greek word has just slipped my mind. But there's a Greek word, uh, diakonia, there we go. Diakonia, when it is translated in reference to women, for example, Paul's mother-in-law, um, it is translated as serve. So when Jesus heals Paul's mother-in-law, she gives, gets up and serves them. But a few verses earlier, um, when Jesus is in the wilderness, the angels diakonia, the angels minister to him. So if it's hmm. used in, in reference to angels and men, it's, it's minister or deacon. If it's used in relationship to women to describe what they're doing, it's serve. It's more of a subservient role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Exactly. Interesting. Um, so what, uh, what biblical women's story first got your attention? I think Bathsheba. I think because... Um, I, I read it and it sounded like rape to me and it didn't sound like a love story. I mean, he, he takes her out, he spies on her, he takes her out of her home. When he finds out she's pregnant, he has her husband brought to town and when he can't get him to go sleep with her, he has her husband killed. This was not a love story. Right, right. Well, and, and and that's the story where uh, David tries to send the husband off to war, right, to have him killed. He does. Or am I confusing it? No, that's what he does. He he calls him back for more. When he finds out he won't go sleep with his wife, he sends him with a note to the front line um, telling the captain to draw everybody back so that Uriah will be killed. So really what you're saying is David was probably more of a womanizer and she was sort of the victim of uh, his maybe even unwanted advances, but in that culture, what was a woman to do but submit? Yes, and when we interpret Bathsheba's story um, as she was a temptress, then we can extrapolate that onto modern-day women who are abused by powerful men because we've already interpreted Bathsheba's story as it's Bathsheba's fault. So I think the way that we interpret biblical women's stories influences the way we look at the same experiences that women have today. Well, that's interesting. Why don't you speak to that a bit? I mean, are you talking about, you know, the gold digger wife or the trophy girlfriends or uh, or, or are you talking about stuff beyond that? Well, no, I'm not talking about that because that's 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 a layer of patriarchy, um, and I don't see a, a biblical woman that I've that I've looked at. I don't see that any of them would fit into that kind of a category. 
maybe Jezebel, but she gets a bad rap all around, so I'm not going to say anything negative about her. Um, there is a woman in the beginning of Esther. She's the queen. Her name's Vashti. She's not in the book, but I think she's fascinating. Um, and she's the queen that that uh, is deposed, and Esther takes her place. And the king has been having a week-long party, and he's drunk, and all of his ministers are drunk, and he demands that she come wearing her crown so he can show off her beauty. And she says no, and she's deposed. And there's the several verses where the, the king and the ministers are all talking about what are we going to do. The queen said no. The, if the queen says no, all of the women might say no. We can't have all of the women saying no, and so we've got to make a law that the queen is never allowed to come into his presence again. Well, if we interpret her story as she got what she deserved because she said no to the king and now she can never be part of the court again, then we have one interpretation of women who say no. They say no, they get what they deserve. If we interpret her story as here is a powerful woman or, or a powerless woman who decided to take her own power and not go into a room of drunken, powerful men, which is no safe place for any woman, then we interpret women who take back their own power in a completely different way. I see. I see. And in and the parallel that you're trying to draw um, to from the, those biblical women and women today, or is that women are still suffering, um, you know, women are still suffering these same sort of, um, what would you say, uh, uh, you know, getting a bad reputation or, uh, you know, being called a, a bitch or a tease, or mm-hmm, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. you know, all of these things that they that potentially you know are said about women if if they don't go along to get along. Exactly, exactly. Recently, well, a couple three years ago, there was a governor in um, Georgia, I think, and he disappeared for a few days and was supposedly out walking the Appalachia Trail. And it turned oh, out. Oh, I remember. He, yes, yes. Do you yes. remember? Yes, Sanford, yes. I, I think was his name. And uh, yeah, he ended up. He was with his girlfriend. Exactly. And when the when I heard the news report, the the reporter said, comparing himself with the temptress Bathsheba. He said that he was with his girlfriend. Whatever else it said, comparing himself with the temptress Bathsheba, she gets she gets a bad rap again. We have no idea who this woman was that he was who his lover was, but but Bathsheba is being held up again as a temptress instead of as a woman who was raped and whose husband was murdered. Well, and what I also hear there, Paula, is that. Um, here the woman is the bad guy, you know. Mm-hmm. She's the evil temptress mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. the man is an adulterer. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of yeah. like when um, a woman catches her husband with somebody else, she attacks the woman rather than, mm-hmm. you know, kicking her husband in the butt. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. You know, it, it's uh, it's the woman who always sort of gets the blame. She's the evil one. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and maybe this is different, but I can also see a parallel to women in burkas. You know, women are the temptresses. You know, so they must hide their body in burkas rather than say, you know, why can't you be an adult man in control of your own libidos? Mm-hmm. 
I I don't I'm really hesitant about saying anything about um a religious tradition not my own but I see that same kind of thing happening uh in Christianity and I can remember back when I was in college and the Jesus freak movement was happening and people were going into communes and reading that the male members of the communes were chastising the women, because when the women bent over to pull weeds out of their garden patch, they could see down their blouses, and it was causing the men to sin. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it. it, it but but the, here we go again. It's how weak or how weak-minded and weak-willed are the men? But yet, instead of um, blaming the man for not having any self-control, it's the woman, you know, who gets the blame. Yeah. I, I mean, it's like recently we had all of these shootings, and um, I think it was out here in Santa Barbara, and it turned out that the guy who killed these women was a misogynist, and he had left behind mm-hmm. these writings about, you know, how women had treated him horribly and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But it it you know there was a lot of scuttlebutt on the internet and because i think rightly so a lot of women were saying why why are these people who were retelling this story you know why do they ask uh, oh what's wrong with our culture rather than what's wrong with some men in our culture now i'm not trying to bash men but with all the domestic violence and um you know the, the uh you know with our with our culture being as violent as it is and often you know women always end up uh on the short end of the stick there um it it's like it's like we can't name the bully you know, we we it's almost as if we are afraid to call men out and say, you know, stop blaming the woman. You know, take some responsibility yourself. I agree, and it's it. I don't want to say that it's men, um, although it is some of them. But it is it is the patriarchal culture, and it is that I just I just cut a cartoon out of um, the newspaper. And it's a family circle, which I usually like. And it's the mom, and she's dancing with the baby brother, and the little girl is standing there. And the caption says, Mommy, you're doing it wrong. You you can't lead. You're dancing with a man. And it's to the baby brother in her arms. And I looked right. at that and went, what? I mean, yeah, still? It, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of a, you know a setting the wrong tone. Well, and I and it, it, you know sort of going you know back to what I was saying before. It's like when you know women are raped in the military. You know it. Uh, you know people like Bill O'Reilly. Um, you know when a woman gets raped, it's always well, what did what did she do to deserve mm-hmm. it? You know, um, how was she dressed? Was she out too late? Was she drinking? You know, and uh, you know it's how our military doesn't even want to really admit or address, um, you know, the, the, the problems that women have with assault. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, to the principles on college campuses where, you know, women end up, you know, being, um, you know, assaulted. Um, it, or, or take, you know, sports figures. All of the sports figures that we know who have beaten up their wives or raped women or killed women and you know, it's it's sort of like nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Well, you know, that's just the way it is, you know. Um, 
it, it it's really insane when when you think about it. And um, I, but I, I don't think the mainstream media really talks about and focuses on the real culprits. How do you mean? And that? so consequently, like with your theme, you know, the woman ends up. Um, you know, the woman ends up the bad guy. You know, she she ends up the prostitute. She ends up, um, you know, someone who who is marginalized in society. When in fact, you know, maybe she wasn't the one that really deserved the scorn. Um, let's talk about another woman who who kind of turned that on her on its head. Okay. And her name is her name is Tamar. And she is the daughter-in-law of Judah, who was one of Leah's sons, one of the one of the twelve tribes of Israel. And so she, Judah, gets her. We're not told how. He just gets her for his oldest son. And the Bible tells us that the oldest son is such a horrible man that God kills him. So now she has to marry the next son, and that son doesn't mind having sex with her, but he has no plans of giving her a child, so he ejaculates on the floor. And um, now there's a third son, but Judah sends her back to live with her family as a widow and is not going to give her the, the, the third son. So now Tamar is living a half-life as a widow in her father's house, and she has to wear widow's clothes, and she can't be part of society, and she'll never be married because She's already had two husbands. And so she takes her life back into her own hands. And she's a Canaanite. And um, as a Canaanite, kind of what you were talking about earlier with paganism, um, she can go be a temple prostitute. And Judah's wife has died, and she knows that he's going to be going to shear his sheep. So she goes and sits by the side of the road. And the Bible says he walks up to her and says, come, let me have sex with you. And so she gets pregnant, but she gets his staff and his cords, which are his identification. And when he finds out she's pregnant, he wants to have her burned alive. And she, she presents this staff and this cord and, and says, you know that the owner of these things is the father of this child. She ends up having twins. And he walks away with his tail between his legs saying, she's more righteous than I am because she, <laughs> she did what was right in the law. So... Here is a powerless woman who is takes back her power and, and lives a full life now because she's got two sons. So all well, at least there's a happy ending. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> well, so now I understand that um, I, I didn't see the cover of your book, but um, apparently it's um, it's very striking and there's been some... Um, I, I don't know, has there been negative reaction to it? Uh, tell me about that. Well, the biggest negative reaction, I guess, is that um, the, the buyer for the religion department of Barnes & Noble doesn't want to have a naked woman in her religion department. She's not naked. I found this picture on Shutterstock. It looks like Deborah Harry, if you know who that is. I don't know uh -huh. if it is or not, but my yeah. cousin thinks it is. So. Um, and she is. She has a red halo that looks like it's dripping blood. She has red lips, red lipstick. Her hands are in prayer position with red fingernails. And 
Um, and in the picture, the original picture, you can see her body down to her hip bones. And I didn't want her sexualized in any way, so I asked the designers to tear the cover so that it's torn uh, right across her neck and right across her abdomen. So basically, you see her beautiful face, her fluffy blonde hair, her hands in prayer, her shoulders, her arms, and on the upper left, I think it is, a tiny bit of underarm breast tissue. But I guess there's really not a way to, you know, for a woman's body not to be sexualized because from feminist friends to, you know, right-wing fundamentalist friends, they've all had questions about it. About the picture. Um, wow, I would I would love it if you could uh, send me an image of that. I would I would really okay. love to see it. Um, I'd be glad to. It, it, and you know that's uh, that's un- unfortunate. You know, at first my thought was, you know, maybe it was just this one crazy woman at Barnes and Noble, but it seems like um, other women have had issues with it too. But do you think it's mm-hmm. their own conditioning? You know, yes. I mean, I am one who says all the time women are complicit in their own oppression. Maybe mm. this is an example of that. Well, once I've given them an, an explanation of what that cover means to me, um, they they understand. And but, so what did your cover have... end up being? I, I assume you couldn't go with that. I did go with that. Oh, you did go with that. It's just oh, Lawrence I... and Noble wouldn't put it in the store. Correct. They'll carry it online. They just won't won't put it in the store. And um, this one, one woman the, had the say so about all the Barnes and Nobles across the country. I'm not positive on that. I just saw a quote from um, from um, one of the distributors or from a distributor, and mm-hmm. so I, I'm just going off of that. I don't know that there's just one. Right. But I, right. I was only told about one. So. Right. Well, you know, I like what you're doing, Paula. I like how you, you are trying to reinterpret women's stories. Um, I mean, uh, it, it's, it's funny that we're talking about this right now because um, in October, um, I am actually uh, having a few weeks where I'm doing uh, Feminist Fairy Tale Month and Goddess and, and, and Feminist Fairy Tale and Goddess Mythology Month, and it's about how we can uh, rewrite our myths and use our fairy tales for uh, women's empowerment. And, you know, a perfect example is Charlene Spretnak has um, has redone the myth of Demeter and Persephone. And Hades mm-hmm. isn't even in the story, you know. And that makes total sense to so many women because, for one thing, you know, a lot of women say that a woman, you know, a, a goddess myth would not have... Um, you know, included a story where a woman was, uh, you know, was 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 a, where she was abducted, raped, mm-hmm. and denied access to her 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 loving mother. I mean, that's just sort of a, you know, we believe it's a patriarchal construct, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, we instead have, you know, given ourselves permission to rewrite that myth 
so that it's it's useful and relevant to women. And I, I think what you're doing is courageous. You know, there's some people who don't have the courage or they're not willing to give themselves permission to do this. And, but I'm glad you, you are because um, you. I, I think these female archetypes, these um, you know these. You know if they were real historic figures. Um, I, I, I mean, I think that's the least we can do. I mean, how long did it take Mary Magdalene uh, to get an apology from the church? And it certainly didn't make the headlines. You know, it was just mm-hmm. sort of, you know, uh, a, a you know a, a, a tiny little whisper swept beneath mm-hmm. the rug. You know. Yes, that's true. And there's still people that will will want to fight me over Mary Magdalene being a prostitute. And when I say there is absolutely nothing in the Bible that says that she was a prostitute, they'll wander away mumbling under their breath, she was a prostitute. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so easy. It's so easy to always, you know, make the woman the villain. You know, whether we're talking about Lilith or we're talking about Eve or we're talking about some of the women, you know, Bathsheba or, mm-hmm. um, you know, the woman either has to be the victim or the villain. Um, you know, you know, it, it's rarely is she um, the powerful mover. And shaker. I mean, just look at what happens during Women's History Month. You know, I mean, there's there's a dearth of of um, you know of wonderful women's history out there to share. Um, but I I think that's a, di- a direct result of our our patriarchal culture. You might want to check out the website National Women's History Museum. Mm-hmm. Because they're they're right now trying to get legislation to get a, uh, a building on the mall in D.C. for a women's history museum, but they are a wealth of information. That's great. That's great. That might be a, a, a great, uh, maybe the curator or someone involved with the museum would be a great person, um, you know, to to have on the show. Um, now, now tell me what this means. Uh, forgive me, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I always ask my guests to send talking points and uh, things that we want to make sure we don't forget to punctuate as we get wrapped up in conversation. Um, but you said the women's stories are told in the first person midrash. What does that mm. mean? I don't know what a midrash is. Uh, Jewish rabbis um, believe that. I wish I had the date. I should have thought about this. Um, that that the words and the spaces between the words had meaning. And so when they were doing their interpretations, and this is hundreds of years ago, when they were doing their interpretations and something didn't make sense to them, then they invented a story, Lilith. Is, is a perfect example of, of, of Midrash because here were these two separate stories of creation and there's two different women created. So what happened to that first woman? So they invented Lilith and then she flies off and then becomes an, an evil person. So that's a perfect example. They, they wrote into, into the story an explanation. So that's what midrash is, sort of mm-hmm. an explanation of mm-hmm. something that either they don't like or something that's, uh, that, that needs some sort of an explanation. 
Exactly. Hmm. Well, exactly. well, that well, that right there uh, doesn't that sort of make everything just open to um, inaccuracy? <laughs> I mean, anybody could have made up anything. Well, that those things aren't in the Bible. Those are separate texts that they wrote as explanation. Um, but don't people so, look at those as mm-hmm. as as a voice of authority, even if they're mm-hmm. they're not, you know. Uh, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the Bible or the Torah or, I mean, people people still must glean, I mean, read them as if they have some value and uh, mm-hmm. accuracy. I'm sure that they do. And, I'm, and, I, and I don't disagree that they're not valuable. I think that they are valuable. Um, and yes, you, I think that you can, that anybody can, do exactly what I did, do exactly what the rabbis did. And I would actually encourage that, that people would read these stories and understand what the context, the historical context um, of these stories are and see what, how they speak to you, not just how they spoke to the rabbis or they spoke to the theologians. As much as anything, I would like this book of literacy, which I heard a radio preacher, I torture myself every once in a while and listen to... Um, radio preachers, and this guy actually said, that's what we believe. I don't know why we believe it, but that's what what we believe. And I was just screaming at the radio, what do you mean you don't know why you believe what you believe? <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, um, I, I, here's, here's what I think, and, you know, maybe there, this is flawed thinking, but I, I think it anyway. Um, I feel like, you know, these stories, this mythology, whatever you want to call it, it was put there to help people um, figure out how to live, to uh, learn values, to teach morality tales. And, you know, all of these horrible stories where we have women subjugated, submissive, you know, the victim, the prostitute, scorned, um, you know, those have survived for, you know, how many thousands of years? Mm-hmm. So, and, and and I mean, and who's to say the people that wrote them didn't just make it up to, you know, kind of support their own patriarchal agenda? Mm-hmm. So I think it's mm-hmm. high time that we take a page out of their book and, you know, rewrite our own stories and make them mm-hmm. work for women rather mm-hmm. than just continue to, you know, uh, buy into the stories that work for the patriarchy. <laughs> I agree, and that's, that's what I hope I've done. Well, it sounds like it. It, it sounds like you really have. Um, so, um, so Paula, uh, as, as we come, uh, you know, start to come to a close here, uh, what, you know, I, I'm sure I probably didn't ask everything you might like readers to, to know about the book. Is there anything I haven't asked that um, you wanted to share or, you know, any woman's story or any aspect of this project that, uh, you know, you, uh, you, know you, you maybe still want to talk about a little bit? Well, I think what I would like to share is the, the the choice that I made on the book cover. Because, if that's okay. Sure, yeah. Okay. So when I was getting all of these questions, one day, I and, and originally I would say things like, well, you know, the bloody halo represents the damage that has been done to women by patriarchal interpretations of women's stories. And, and that's true. 
But I picked up the cover and I looked at her and I said, why are you so important to me? And in that moment, I knew. I knew that the bloody halo represented the five different times I was molested in my growing up in the church. Two camp directors, one minister, one youth minister, and a minister from the district office. And so that was the bloody halo. And then I looked at her hair, and it was my hair as a kid, which was always fly away, and people would say, oh, your hair is such a mess, it's just like corn soap, can't you do anything with it? Well, I kind of like corn soap, but there that was. And then it was this woman's body that that was like my woman's body as a, as a young woman, which was you know, never thin enough, and boobs were never big enough, or whatever that turned out to be. And so... I looked at her and I and I looked at her hands in prayer. I was even told once that my red nail polish represented the devil. <laughs> and so that that woman was me, bleeding and praying and wishing for things to be different. Right. And when I looked at other women for the cover, they were either their hands in prayer looking down submissively or their hands outstretched looking up longingly. And I didn't want that. I want women, I want it to be a change. I don't want us to be submissive. Right, And so there was she being me, staring straight out at anybody who was willing to look back at her, praying and bleeding, and the women in that book are different than they've been portrayed for thousands of years. Well, and what I hear you saying, I mean, I think you're incredibly brave and courageous. And, um, you know, not only is that woman you, but that woman is every woman who has been subjugated, oppressed, exploited, molested by patriarchy. And I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And that is hard to look at. Um, you know, you are looking at the tainted... Um, hypocrisy, uh, the ugliness that exists in, uh, you know, the misogyny, all of that stuff that's real that, um, you know, unfortunately people who are still sheeple in these religions um, either want to look the other way or uh, sweep it under the rug or, I mean, I mean, you you know more than I do what you know what we're talking about here, and um, and and you know I, I I applaud you for sticking with that cover because I think the cover in itself, you know, it makes a statement, you know, uh, as it should. I mean, that's what covers do. Uh, covers are supposed to be provocative. They're supposed to um, encourage people to pick up the book, and um, it sounds like you've got a great cover there, lady. Oh, thanks. I will send you an image of it. Yeah, I, I really do look forward, um, you know, look forward to seeing it because, you know, you know, too many women have been misused and abused um, by all the patriarchal institutions, you know. Um, I, it, it's so funny. I, uh, I think I can put my hands on it. There's this little book that uh, I just learned about by Peter Wilkes, and it's uh, a woman called... God, and um, he is the son of an evangelical minister. He's 70 years old now, Um, but uh, what he says in the back of this cute little book, he says that uh, Peter Wilkes, now 70 years of age, has come to the conclusion that organized religion has continually done 
far more harm than good. Mm. You know, and and so he's written this book, you know, A Woman Called God, about uh, imagine that one idea, how that one idea can change the world. And, you know, I constantly go back to if we had had the goddess, if we would never have had this suffering of women, um, you know, in, in the patriarchal culture, you know, in the church. And uh, uh, we can't forget that. We can't be quiet about it. And um, I'm so glad you wrote your book. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me on your show. This has been delightful. Well, well, thank you uh, for thank you for thank you for being on, and thank you for you know getting uh, having the courage to get women to rethink um, you know these 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 characters uh, in history. You know, uh, I mean, it's only fair that these women be told from a, a, a woman's uh, point of view. I, I mean, I know when I wrote my first book, um, Sacred Places of Goddess, and I was trying to look for. Um, um, you know, places off the beaten path that everybody hadn't heard about, and you know, and I, I wanted to try to find sacred place, uh, um, sacred places of Polynesian goddesses, and I remember how difficult it was um, to do that research because, again, the ethnographers of the time, you know, usually men, usually of Vic- uh, the Victorian age, usually Christian, you know, they had colored and rewritten, um, you know, the, the mythology of these ancient people because it wasn't what they thought it should be. You know, it's mm-hmm. as if they wanted to fix it or something. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I, I don't know, and and I I I think that's uh, that that's a terrible thing to do, and I think we lose so much if we don't look through different lenses, if we don't look through the female lens, if we don't you know look through the lens of a particular people. You know, it should, you know, everything we see in the world should not be th- through the the male patriarchal lens, mm-hmm. for heaven's sake. Despite what the Supreme Court thinks. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question. Um, based on you're talking about the um, fairy tale rewriting, feminist fairy tale rewriting. I, I'm having a little bit trouble hearing you. Can you move your mouth oh. a little bit closer to the phone? Sure. I wanted to ask you a question based on what you were saying about feminist fairy tale rewriting. Yes. Did you, by any chance, I hope this is not inappropriate, see Maleficent? Yes, actually, Paula, that's what inspired me to do the Feminist Fairy Tale Month because I thought, you know, here is a new fairy tale for a new age, you know, Mm -hmm. that is exactly what inspired me and then made me start thinking about Avatar, you know, because Avatar is a new story, you know, as well. Um, But I I assume Maleficent must have um, impressed you the same way. I went to see it twice, and I never do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought it was a great story. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I think the woman can't always be saved by the prince. And um, right. I, 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 was really, I was really surprised that uh, Disney had the courage to go in that direction. I thought it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw any of the stuff on the Internet about it, but I, I looked it up a little bit, and... I saw some 
things that said, oh, well, it's just a lesbian story, that's all it is, and totally dismissed it. And I didn't get anything, I mean, I thought it was a beautiful love story between a mother figure and a daughter figure. Of course. I mean, anybody who says that's it's ridiculous. But you know what? Um, uh, there was a lot of bashing of Avatar, too, you know, because there's this crazy um, connection between corporatism and Christianity in a lot of circles. And, you know, Avatar was anti-corporate, and uh, it was mm. definitely pro-nature. And mm. it had, uh, you know, it had a lot of panties in a bunch. Uh, but so <laughs> what? You know, so what? I mean, uh, I, I feel like, um, you know, uh, Cameron, what, what's the director's name? Um, I don't know. Oh, I, I forgot now. Uh, but uh, I, I and I'm so glad he's doing, uh, you know, you know, doing two other sequels or prequels or whatever, because I think it's so important that we show, um, you know, different ways of being in the world and um, revering nature is is not a bad way to go. I know all my listeners were saying they wanted to book the first passage to Pandora because Pandora <laughs> looked like a pretty cool place. <laughs> So, uh, but but yeah, uh, Maleficent. I definitely highly recommend it to listeners who maybe have uh, heard it's not a good movie. Don't believe it. <laughs> um, well, Paula, I, I want to thank you for being on the show tonight. And uh, before you say goodbye, uh, would do you have a website that uh, you'd like um, listeners to be able to find you or communicate with you, a, a blog or anything like that? I do. Um... The website is, of course, the HTTP stuff, www.oh, I'm looking at my card because I don't want to get this wrong, www.drtrimblefamiletti, all one word, dot com, because it's dr for doctor. Okay. And Wonderful. then, and, uh, go ahead. The, blo- the blog is whybelieveone.com blogspot.com Why Believe One? O-N-E? Because mm-hmm. okay. mm-hmm. the, the original title for the book was going to be Why Do We Believe What We Believe? Right. 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 Ah, yes, yes. We have to make critical thinkers of the sheeple, don't we? <laughs> we need them to <laughs> I've awake. never heard that expression before, sheeple. Oh, the sheeple? Oh, yes, 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 the sheeple. The sheeple of Fox News and et al. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, the, the, the ones that have not awakened yet. You know, we, we talk about being the cognitive minority. You know, um, we, we feel like, you know, we, we know some truths that the rest of the world have not caught up to yet. So they're the sheeple, we're the cognitive minority, and, you know, we, we're just waiting for them to evolve. <laughs> Well, Paula, thank you. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for being on the show and for having the courage to write the book. And I look forward to the you sending me that image. And if you would, remind me to send you the links to Marguerite Rigoliozzo's books uh, that talk about, uh, I mean, because what she's done, too, is she has taken different women in history and uh, she, uh, you know, I mean, she, this was part of her thesis. She defended this, uh, you know, defended this thesis, and, you know, before she could graduate. And, um, you know, she talks about different women in history and points to um, how, you know, there may have been 
you know, parthenogenesis and, um, you know, women who used to have powers that, uh, that, that of course, you know, we no longer have. And uh, it's very interesting stuff. But, it, you know, and, and who knows if it's true, but if it were true, it's just one more example of why men were so afraid of women. Because, I mean, not that every woman had that ability, you know, to... Um, you know, to become pregnant without the aid of a man, um, you know, only, you know, trained priestesses, uh, you know, and select few, you know, could maybe do this thing. I mean, it, it was a, it was a rare, uh, it was a rare thing, and and not everybody had the ability. But um, you know, you get the idea that, um, you know, that that you know, if women really had that power, that it would make men very afraid that they would really be irrelevant. And, you know, and, and I'm not a man basher. I have a wonderful husband who I've been married to for the last 30 years. But, um, you know, some of these some of these patriarchal men out there, you know, who make life hard for for uh, for women, um, you know, they're going to have to get their stuff together, I, I, I think, in the future, or they're not going to be marriage material. <laughs> they're, they're not going to find wives, at the very least. <laughs> Well, thank you, Paula, um, you know, for being on the show, and uh, good luck with your book, and uh, keep in touch, and I'll look forward to your email. My pleasure, Karen. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, Bye-bye. listeners, next week we have on the show uh, Daphne Leah uh, Kazmaier. She's going to be talking about wedding knowledge in the goddess faith tradition. And Elaine Trakowski uh, will be with us. Uh, she's going to talk about male violence is one of the worst problems in the world. Uh, those are two of our topics uh, for, uh, for next week. So uh, to close tonight's show, we only have about three minutes left. We've cut a little close here. Uh, I think I'll just close on some upbeat music. Um, Maybe uh, Abigail Spinner McBride here. Um, How about In the Arms of the Mother? That would be nice. So good night, dear listeners. Have a wonderful weekend. I will be with you again next Wednesday. Please tune in. Uh, Press the follow button um, to make sure you don't miss uh, notice of uh, any show. And as I asked earlier, please do go to my website or uh, some other uh, bookseller and pick up Goddess Calling, Inspirational Messages and Meditations of Sacred Feminine Liberation Theology. Good night. <laughs>